This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. This passage that we're looking at today is uh, kind of builds off last week. They're very connected, and so this is kind of part B. If that was A, they just uh, kind of go from one uh, one session, uh, one, one narrative, one experience to the next. So I certainly want to give you a little update on what happened last week so that you'll be connected with what happened this week. Uh, we are in the book of Acts. We're reading about... Uh, how the new church, the first church is birthed and how they're growing and all this kind of stuff. And so what happened last week in chapter 3, what happened 2,000 years ago, but for us it happened last week in chapter 3, is that uh, two, two apostles, Peter and uh, John, are walking into the temple. And as they walk into the temple, they come across a crippled man, a man who cannot walk. He's 40 years old. He's never walked his entire life. And so he's a beggar. That's how he makes his living. And he asks them for money. And uh, so they say, we don't have any money. Peter says, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and, and rise. I'm paraphrasing. Rise up and walk. And instantly the guy is healed. Ankles which have never stood before. Uh, feet which have never held body weight before. Stand up. And he's instantly healed. And he just goes totally excited. He starts leaping, is the word. He's leaping in the temple. And uh, evidently shouting, praise God, he's excited because a crowd gathers around. And when the crowd gathers around, then at that point, Peter tells them about the good news of Jesus. And he tells them that they crucified Jesus, that Jesus is, uh, was the one God sent, that God raised Jesus up. And that there is hope for them. Even though they have opposed God's son, his Messiah, uh, there is hope for them. Because they can repent, turn from their sins, they can believe in Jesus, and He will forgive every one of their sins. This is amazing. So He's telling these people, God will forgive your sins, and He'll give you times of refreshing. The Holy Spirit will refresh you, renew you, invigorate you, give you new life. You can have all of this if you turn to Christ. That's His blessing. He says His blessing is to turn every one of you from your sin to Him. And then, as soon as they're saying that last part I just said, as soon as they're preaching, they're interrupted. And that's where we start today, chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, 
the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astounded. And they recognized that they had been Jesus. But seeking, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your miraculous power. We thank you that you are a God who cares compassionately about those who suffer and delight to deliver them. We thank you that you're a God who brings good news to all of us who suffer in sin and will do so eternally. And you rescue us from that sin and draw us to yourself through faith and repentance. Lord, we just thank you that you're a God who, uh, who forgives and who gives new life. And we thank you that you're a God that changes our hearts and lives. You're a God who fills us with your spirit, who grants us boldness, who loves us. And we just pray as we see all of these things in this text that you would speak to us today. God, we pray that you would change us. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word. I pray that you'd fill us all with your spirit that we have ears to hear and hearts to respond. Oh God, please. In your mercy, meet with us today and make us the kind of people filled with the Spirit, bold for you, loving you, following you. Make us those kind of disciples, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We started out in the book of Acts, and it's been very good news. It's been very happy. It's been, uh, everyone's having a great time. The church is in renewal and revival. But from what we just read, the church now has opposition. And the church of Jesus Christ will experience persecution from the passage we just read 2,000 years ago until Jesus returns. There will be persecution for the church forever. That is the nature of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I believe starting today that this teaching in Acts, the book of Acts, is going to begin to shape how we view opposition. How we view opposition to the gospel. How we view opposition to Jesus Christ. How we view opposition to his people. See, I think most of us, myself included, have sort of an upside down view of opposition. Here's what we tend to assume. If we are resisted, if we are persecuted, if we are opposed, of take away persecution. If we are just sort of excluded because of the gospel, because of the word of God, we think something's wrong. We tend to think if someone res resists us, 
because of our relationship with Christ, that this must be wrong. We start praying that that would stop, that, that, that something is misaligned, that this isn't the way that it's supposed to be. But in fact, opposition to the gospel is not wrong, it is right. But Jesus said that, you know, those who follow him, his students, if the teacher is opposed, how much more will we be opposed? He said that this was the the lot of the Christian is that we would be opposed. In fact, he said that we're to be concerned when we're not opposed. What's concerning is not that someone would resist the gospel or not someone that would resist us for believing the word of God. What's concerning is when all people speak well of us. That's what Jesus said. Everyone's speaking well of you. Be on your guard. Be concerned. Because perhaps there's nothing of the Lord and His testimony adequately coming out of us that would push back the darkness, that would cause those who don't believe in Jesus to resist us. Now, that doesn't mean we're to go out and seek to stir up trouble. That we're to be, and then, you know, we're not talking about being persecuted because we're jerks. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about being self-righteous, condemning people. Wow, they're really opposed to us. Well, you're self-righteously condemning them. That's why they're opposing you. Not because you're representing Jesus. Those are two very different things. So I'm not talking about self-righteousness or in your face or arrogant. We're right. and The rest of you are all wrong. This kind of narrow, uh, you know, this, this sort of attitude that just loves uh, picking a fight and debating and uh, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about loving people, but loving them enough to tell them the truth about Jesus and realizing that he's a separator and, uh, and that belief in him will cause resistance from some people. One commentator that I read on this chapter, this is what he called it. These are three words that stuck in my mind that, that fit this chapter and fit all of Acts. And I pray fit our lives and fit our church. This is what he called this. He called it opposition and harvest. He said that's what's happening in chapter 4. Opposition and harvest. And we want harvest without opposition. You know, we want just people to love Jesus and love us and for there to be, uh, you know, cheering us on all the way and there to be just harvest and no opposition. But the truth is that where there's harvest, there will be opposition. And we try to separate the two, but in the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that the two come together. And we're going to see this very clearly in this chapter. So we want to pray that God will help us bring the message of the gospel to others. We want to pray for a great harvest. We don't want to insert ourselves and we don't want our attitudes or our sins or our immaturity to push anybody away. We don't want to give anybody a stumbling block except the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if they're going to resist that, then so be it. And we pray and love them um, regardless. Okay, here's what happens in this chapter. There's three scenes of this persecution. There is an arrest, and this is really mild persecution in terms of what's coming later. But there's an arrest, there's a hearing or a trial, casual trial, we could call it a hearing. And then there are there is a threat that is given. So let's look at this together. Chapter 4. First of all, they're speaking and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come upon them greatly annoyed, verse 2, because they are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they're teaching and uh, what happens is all of a sudden they're, they're, the, the big guns come in. And these are the big guns. First of all, the priests are coming in. They're in the temple. They're on the temple precincts. 
The priests are responsible for the worship of God's people, for leading the worship of God's people. They have an authority. And so the priests come in. They don't like what's going on. So you kind of, we all kind of know who the priests are. And then with the priests, there's also uh, this guy called the captain of the temple. Now, this guy is a fascinating... I read a little bit about this position this week. This guy's a fascinating guy because he is the second highest priest. The highest priest is called... Well, the high priest, uh, hence the name. Who's the highest priest? The high priest. So the high priest uh, is his top dog. He's, he's the top guy. And uh, then the number two guy is the captain of the temple. So he's the second highest priest. But get this, he's not only the second highest priest, he's the chief of security. So that's why he's showing up here. So the second highest priest is the, leads the security force. So this guy can offer a sacrifice, preach a sermon, and then beat up any troublemakers out in the audience on the same Saturday for worship. So this guy is quite a guy. He's a scholar and a brute together. So you'd think the captain would have to have some imposing presence when he shows up. He's just not walking up with a scroll. uh, And uh, he's flexing. So this guy's smart and strong. And so he's the captain of the security force. Or maybe he's a wimp and just has a lot of guys with him that are strong. I don't know. But he he is the guy who's in charge of security. And so it's the captain. He and the temple guard, they're the ones that arrested Jesus a few months ago. So if you're Peter and you see this guy and and, and his stooges coming towards you, those are the guys that arrested Jesus. And so this is serious. They're they're concerned there's a disturbance, and so they're coming to break up any disturbance. And then there are the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are a very powerful group. We often hear about the Pharisees, and so it's kind of another party in Judaism. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. Here's the Sadducees. They're wealthy, they've got money, they're aristocratic, and they're connected with the Romans. So here we have Israel. They're ruled over politically by Rome. Rome's in charge of them, oversees them ultimately. And the Sadducees, because they're wealthy and powerful, they're sort of connected with Rome. They're in good with Rome. So there's a good relationship between the two of them. And they're a ruling party. So in the Sanhedrin, which is like 70 guys that sort of judge and led by the high priest, they're the highest highest court. They're the judicial branch of of uh, Hebrew religion, we could say. So they make the decisions judicially, and they're the ones who ultimately condemn Jesus. Um, and so the Sadducees make up the majority of the Sanhedrin. They make up the majority. They're the majority. Think of it this way. They're wealthy judges. They're connected judges. They're connected with the oppressive governmental power judges, and they don't want their power to be messed with. So these guys are a threat. Because if they're out preaching things and crowds are coming together and there's a ruckus and there's a movement, um, there could be insurrection and Rome could come down on them. And if Rome comes down on them, they're coming down on the Sadducees, they're going to lose their power. So they've got a motivation here to make sure there's no trouble and that everything stays calm. Now here's the other thing about the Sadducees. And you you pick this up when it, uh, here's a doctrinal point about them. You pick this up in verse 2. They're greatly annoyed because they're teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So, the Sadducees are not like hyper-doctrinal like the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are, you you know them as those who are very specific in practice and interpreting the law and that sort of thing. The the Sadducees uh, are not that. They're not that particular, but they do have one distinctive doctrine, and that is they do not believe in the resurrection. 
I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the future resurrection of people. Uh, and so they don't believe in a future resurrection. So they show up and they're greatly annoyed for a couple of reasons. First of all, they're preaching the resurrection from the dead, but they don't believe in that. But they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. They're ultimately proclaiming Jesus was resurrected. And so that's a problem. Because if, if they condemned Jesus to death and God raised him up from the dead, that looks really bad on them. You don't want that on your judicial record. We condemned God when he showed up in the flesh and we represent God. That's not good. So if, if Jesus came back to life, that validates his claims. He is who he says he is. And if Jesus is who he says he is, these powerful guys rejected Jesus. And so they don't want any uh, sort of momentum uh, for this movement. They don't want this movement to get traction, these Christians. They don't want this early church to start spreading because that would hinder them politically. That would hinder their power and their, their spreading doctrine that the Sadducees disagree with. So these are powerful guys. The priests, the captain of the temple, and the Pharisees showing up together. And look what they do. Verse 3, they arrested them and put them in custody. So they threw them in some kind of cell, some kind of jail, some kind of house arrest. I don't know what it was. But they put them in some type of custody until the next day for it was already evening. This is just a power move. Uh, they could have just said, okay, guys, tone it down, break it up. We'll meet you tomorrow at 9 a.m. and talk about this. The apostles are in the temple every day. So it's not like they're, they're, they're in the temple every day, Acts 2 says. So they could have said, when you're here tomorrow, we'll meet and talk about this. So that, you know, we don't approve of this, but we'll talk about it tomorrow. But no, they, have, they do a power thing and they like throw them in jail for the night. And, uh, but at the same time, what the passage says is that they shut up the apostles for a, for a night at least. But what happened was they, they don't really shut up the effects of the apostles' preaching. Look at verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word, the apostles had preached, many who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Many believed. And so what happens here is they try to silence the apostles, but people are believing. This is what John Stott said about this. The Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. You can arrest the apostles, you cannot arrest the gospel. And the reason is because the gospel has power. The power of God is resident in the message of the gospel and in the proclaiming of the gospel. When the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day was raised... And has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. That good news of the gospel that you can have forgiveness from your sins in Jesus Christ by believing. That good news that he was resurrected and defeated sin and defeated death. And God the Father loves us and adopts us into his family. When we repent and believe we become part of his family. That God showers his mercy and kindness and love on us and gives us eternal life. Because of what Jesus did. That good news you cannot shut up. And when that good news is preached or shared over a cup of coffee or read in the Bible, it has power. And people's lives start changing. They become new, new people in Christ. And you can throw them in a jail cell, but you cannot stop the word. And I want to point something out right here in this text that we're going to see through the rest of the book of Acts. We've called this series Multiply. And what's really weird about that is I'm, this is the seventh message, and I don't think I've ever said why we called it that. Like sometimes this is like a math tutoring series. I don't know if it's called the multiply. Well, here's the reason. 
is because the word of God goes forth and it has this multiplying effect where it, 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 uh, it, uh, it works in people's lives and saves them. So look at verse 4. Those who had heard the word believed. And so now there's about 5,000. It says that the number of the men came to about 5,000. This could be literally the males are 5,000. And if that's the case, maybe there's 10,000 believers, 15,000, include women and children. I don't, I don't know. Uh, some say, well, that word can be used you know, to mean men and women, though it has a distinct, uh, it, it's distinctly use of men. Um, so if that's the case, if they really mean that, then it's 5,000. But whatever the number is, it's growing. It started with 120. The next number we get is 3,000, and now we're at five or 10 or 15,000, whatever. So it's really growing. And the way it's growing is the Word. The Word, in this case, is the preached gospel. He preaches the gospel in chapter 3. The Word is the gospel being spoken and explained. And that Word has incredible power. And we see this at other places in Acts. Consider Acts 6, verse 7. Look at the same thing, the word of the gospel, Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied, there's the word, greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the word of God is increasing. It's spoken, and it has this increasing power. There's momentum behind the preaching of the good news. There's momentum when the love of Christ and his death for sinners is shared. There's momentum when the resurrection is proclaimed. And what happens is the disciples are multiplied. More and more of them come to faith and even some religious leaders come to faith. Look at Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So the word of God is spoken and it has this increasing power. God uses his preached word and it multiplies. Or Acts 19. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that. The word of God is spoken. Lives are changed. And you can come start throwing people into prison. But the word of God is going to prevail mightily. And what's been shown over church history is the more you seek to clamp down and the more you seek to persecute and the more you seek to silence the people of God, the faster the gospel spreads, often underground. But that's happened throughout history is that you, no one can resist the purposes of God and silence the goodness. And so that I love how Luke says that. And they were thrown in jail and like 5,000 people believe. Wow. Okay, well, let's go to jail the next day. If that's the results, let's just start wonderful. God is doing something. What's happening? Opposition, verses 1 through 3, harvest, verse 4. Opposition and harvest work together in the book of Acts. And they work together in our world as well. Okay, so that's the arrest. The second thing is the hearing. Verse 5 says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together. Scribes was probably some of the Pharisees. So we have the Pharisees in, in this group. They, they gathered together with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. And Alexander. Annas hadn't actually been high priest since the early part of the century. Uh, the Romans removed him, but uh, it's sort of like perhaps like a president. Once you're a high priest, you always carry that title. Uh, so if Jimmy Carter or one of the George Bushes walked in the room right now, we would say President Carter, President Bush. They would still carry that title, even though they're not the acting president. The acting high priest at the time was his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's mentioned there. Uh, and so he may have still had power behind the scenes, Annas, 
They may have viewed him like that, but for the record, the current one was Caiaphas, and John was the next one. So you've got the previous, the present, and the future high priest in the room. So this is not a misdemeanor. This isn't a small thing. These guys are worried about what's going on. People are getting miraculously healed. Thousands of people are believing. So they're, they're very serious about this. It says they set them in their midst and they inquired. How they set them in their midst? The, the Sanhedrin, which was the judicial um, group of, uh, of these individuals, the priests, Sadducees, etc. Uh, there were 70 of them. They were led by a high priest. And they would sit kind of in a semicircle. So they're probably uh, fanned out in a semicircle so you could see the other members of the council. And uh, these guys are probably standing up in here. So they're in their midst. They kind of come around them, and you just can feel the eyes on you from every level. And they inquire, and I love the inquiry. Look at the inquiry. By what power or by what name did you do this? Rather vague, isn't it? They're not really acknowledging what's happened. They're not really using language to describe what happened. They're just calling it this, you know, this, this sort of... Uh, Whatever's happened here, this, 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 this thing. But what, what, who gave you the authority to, to do this? Who besides this council said you could be out, <clears throat> they don't want to say it, but healing people? Who besides this council said you could be out teaching in the, in the portico of Solomon, uh, Solomon's portico is what it's called, this colonnade area where they were preaching. Who said you could be standing over there preaching and gathering thousands? So they don't want to say, and what I love about Peter is he's going to say exactly what happened. He's not, he'll have none of this, this. Uh, he's going to tell them exactly what happened and get it out in the open and acknowledge it. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want to say something about filled with the Holy Spirit before we look at what Peter says. Um, let's note this, Peter's already been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, on the day of Pentecost... When he stands up to preach, says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So Peter's one of the all. He's already been filled with the Holy Spirit. Before this chapter's over, there'll be another filling with the Holy Spirit. And I just want to point out something about that that I think is very important. I mean, this is descriptive. This passage isn't about being filled with the Spirit. I mean, that's not, it's not teaching us the nature of being filled with the Spirit. It's just sort of a descriptive comment. But I think it's important for us to know that, that doesn't mean he was converted at that moment. He's already converted. Filling of the Spirit doesn't mean his conversion at this moment. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about some second blessing that happens in an isolated occasion one time. So I got saved, and then I was filled with the Spirit, and then you're on your own after that or something. That's not what it is. We're going to see in the first four chapters the phrase is used three times. So there is an empowering and a filling of the Spirit that happens on multiple occasions. It's a repeatable experience. Uh, it's not a singular experience. And what we see right here, uh, as he begins to speak to them, we see that ultimately one of the primary uh, evidences that he's filled is his boldness. In verse 13 it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John... So the Spirit fills him, he speaks, and everybody's like, whoa. When we see what he says, I mean, there's some, he's, he's speaking bold. So the Spirit fills him and gives him the words to say. When the Spirit fills us, uh, he'll fill us in, in a lot of different ways, but he fills us to empower us for service, to empower us for witness. 
He fills us and gives us spiritual gifts. He fills us and gives us boldness to stay, take a stand for Christ. He fills us and, 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 and gives us an impression of what the Spirit's leading us to do. Or we see gifts of the Spirit, which can be tied to filling with the Spirit. Prophecy or healing or, or tongues or miracles we're reading about here. And so the filling of the Spirit is to empower us to speak for Him, to serve Him, to reach others. It is something that God does with His people because they can't do it on their own. Peter can't stand up and say these things. He wouldn't have this clarity. He wouldn't have this confidence. He wouldn't have this fearlessness. How do we know that? Well, because at the end of the Gospel, of the Gospels, there's a servant girl and he's afraid to tell her he believes in Jesus. I don't know how old she is, but she's a little girl. And he's afraid to acknowledge Jesus. Now, he's standing in a semicircle of people that crucified Jesus a few months ago. And he's going to get in their face with love, but he's going to get in their face. And he could die right here. And he's just going to preach the gospel. What's the difference between one and the other? Well, one is the coming of the Spirit. And here he's freshly empowered for this service, for this speech. That he gives. So look at what this spirit filled man says in verse 8. Peter, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined, now here's the this. I'm not going to say this, he says. If we're being examined today, if we're having a hearing, a trial, if you're interrogating us concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? So, excuse me, do you want to talk about the guy who for 40 years was unable to walk, and now he's been leaping around the temple, celebrating the new walk? Now, he's standing here with them, by the way, the guy is. We see that in a minute. Uh, now, do you want to talk about the mercy which reached out to this man in his weakness and his despair and changed his whole life? Is, is that what you guys are wanting to talk about? Love that attitude. He's not going to just say that this. That, that's bold. That's bold. I, I trust it's respectful and loving, but it's in your face, no doubt. Uh, and he says, is that what you want to talk about? Well, let it be known to all of you. And here's a hint. And to all the people of Israel. So we're going to tell you, and we don't plan on keeping this in the room, by the way. Let everyone in Israel know this fact. Tell everybody that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So they're asking, who gave you the authority outside of this council to be doing this? He's saying, well, you rejected Jesus. He's the one that gave us authority. God raised him from the dead. And it's in his name that this man was healed. And then he goes, he goes old, old Testament on them. They're the experts in the Word of God. And he, he quotes Psalm 118, or refers to Psalm 118. This Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So that's Psalm 118. He's saying, you guys are the builders. You're building the Hebrew people. You're building the, the covenant, uh, uh, the religion of the covenant people of God. You're leading in the temple. You're the ones building. And here's what you did. There was a stone over here and you said, we don't want that stone. That stone's not good. He's using a metaphor. You're building a building. And the, the cornerstone was the one where you would put the two walls when they come to a point. Uh, the cornerstone is what held that up. And so he said, God took the stone that you rejected and he said, he's going to build the whole building on it. It's going to bear the weight of the building. He's going to take what you rejected and it's going to be central. 
It's going to be necessary and needed, and it's going to hold the whole building up. What you rejected is is the means of salvation. That's what he says in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So, you rejected the stone? Jesus. God's building his whole house on Jesus. And here's the other thing. He's not an option. There is no salvation outside of him. But this is really bold. Really bold. He's telling them, in essence, John 14, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what he's saying. No one gets to Jesus through the stone he rejects, except through the stone he rejected. And he's preaching the gospel to them. He's letting them know, if you rejected him, here's the truth. We all rejected him. It's really easy to put it on these guys. Yeah, they missed it. Hey, look, every time we have resisted the will of God, every time we've broken the scriptural commands, every time we fail to do what the scripture calls us to do, we, we've resisted God as well. We've resisted Christ as well. And so the Christ whom we all resisted by nature, God had died for our sins, got the Father, and raised him up to new life. So we can relate to this. We've rejected Jesus by nature. We all prefer ourselves, prefer, prefer the gods of our own choices, as opposed to worshiping Jesus. So we all have rejected the cornerstone. And he's saying there's no other salvation in, any, in, in anyone else. There's no other name. By which we must be saved. So not only have you, you haven't rejected an option, you've rejected the only way you can have your sins forgiven. That's what it tells them. Now, it'd be hard to imagine a, a verse that would be less popular in our culture. We, we like pluralism. We like many ways to God. I'm thankful to live in a country where there is freedom, where anyone can express their different views about God. So I'm very grateful for that, for the reality that we can speak freely of our faith in this country, whatever that faith may be, and we obviously support that. But the reality is that in our culture, it's beyond just having the right to speak. It's like there's multiple ways. We, we don't believe in exclusive truth. We're just sort of into truthiness. That's sort of true. Your truth, my truth, their truth, personal truth, um, situational truth. Uh, truth that whatever works for you, truth, pragmatic truth. So we're not really for anybody actually claiming there's only one way in our culture. And that's exactly what they do here. By the way, we can kind of sort of think we live in a modern world or postmodern world where, you know, a pluralistic society where we really resist that kind of idea. Well, by the way, it didn't go over real well there either. Uh, it kind of landed as a FUD for them as well. They were like, oh, well, that clears it up. Yeah, that they were they're resisting as well. So the human heart is always opposed to being told there's one way and he's Jesus unless they're going to believe in Jesus. And so this is, this is something I think important to consider. In our culture, saying that Christ is the only way is going to be less and less acceptable. At least that's the way. I'm not a prophet. But that's the way it sure looks like we're moving as a society. And uh, so we're going to have to be prepared today and in the future to say that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the only way. And we don't do that with arrogance, we do that with love. We don't do that with self-righteousness. See, sometimes people are just 
rejecting the fact that the, the, the person is arrogant and self-righteous and condemning and looking down on everybody. And Jesus is like a merit. There's no grace in it. Jesus is a merit badge. I'm right. You're wrong. And it's a debatable thing. Well, if that's the attitude, it's understandable. People aren't really rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting a bad representation of Jesus. They're rejecting a false advertisement of Jesus. They're rejecting people who are idiots, who are just saying whatever they want and promoting themselves and not Jesus. So let's make sure that if we are getting resistance, it's because of the gospel and because of the word of God and not because we're pompous. Okay, let's make sure it's the right reason. But we, we must be prepared to take a stand that he is the only way. And that's loving. Note, note this. He's saying exclusive, something exclusive. Jesus is the only way. But there's also something very inclusive here. And by that I mean there's an inclusive invitation. Everybody's invited to believe. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. So there's only one way, but everybody's invited to the way. There's only one way, but everybody's offered grace. It's a universal invitation. So it's not an exclusive invitation. It's just an exclusive road. Jesus is the only one who can actually save. And Peter says that full of the Spirit, very clearly risking his own life as he does so. So they, they consider what he says and look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. They perceived they were uneducated and common, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. It doesn't mean that they were a low IQ or stupid or something like that. That's not what it means when he says they were uneducated. I mean, both these guys wrote books. If you ever read the Gospel of John, you see he's a sharp guy. Every first Peter, second Peter, sharp guy. So these weren't, when he says uneducated, it didn't mean like they were illiterate. But uneducated, they were not formally theologically trained in, in a rabbinical, a rabbinic school or something like this. They were common. That means they weren't professional religious people working down at the temple. Uh, they were guys who previously had just had regular trades and had been called to follow Jesus. And that's what they noticed about them. They had been with Jesus. So, when they noticed what was going on, when they noticed what these guys did, when they noticed what these guys said, when they saw their clarity, when they saw they're not afraid, here was their conclusion. They've been with Jesus. I read that this week and I thought, what in my life would someone encounter and say, well, he's been with Jesus? Would people say that about me? It's not the point of the text. The point of the text, they're preaching Christ. The point of the text is of me. That's a good application to think about. Where in our lives would people look at us and say, they've been with Jesus? The way we love? They love in an unusual way. The way we forgive? See, no one's more forgiving than Jesus. Jesus forgives the very people that are killing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The way we forgive, the way we show mercy to those in need, like Jesus did. The way we're selfless. She is so selfless, I can tell she's been with Jesus. The the way we're bold, that's specifically what's going on here. Not arrogant and self-righteous, but bold in Christ. The way we have courage, they have courage here at the risk of their lives. The way we endure, that's a big one. They endure, they persevere like someone who's been with Jesus. 
How are they sustained through this difficulty? They're there with Jesus. How are they pressing on? How do they keep on keeping on? They've been with Jesus. Now we can say, well, yeah, they were literally with Jesus. They had meals with Jesus. They watched Jesus do miracles. They were taught by Jesus. True. And you know what Jesus said? It'll be better for those after I go away. He says we are in a better condition than the apostles. Now, they actually are living after Jesus here. So they're in the better right now. Why why is it better? Because now the Holy Spirit has come. Now Peter's filled with the Spirit. Before they were with Jesus personally. Jesus dies for sins. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. Acts 2. He pours out the Spirit. Now He's in us. That's better. Now He's with us. Internally, guiding our minds, stirring our affections, working in that way, and filling us, empowering us. That's better. And we can be with Jesus too through His Word. So how do we be? When none of us can have a meal with Jesus like they did. But we can commune with Jesus through his word. And so we can be with him too. We are with him. He is with us. So what is it? What about our church would make it look where they look on and say, those people have been with Jesus. Our unity, our service, our love, our heart for God's word, our compassion, our prayer for the sick and needy. Where, would, where could it be detected that the Holy Spirit has come and made us new people? That we're distinct. Or they come in and say, man, they're, they're different. They couldn't explain it all. They wouldn't be able to say, well, theologically, they were dead, and then they were regenerated by the Spirit, and now they're walking out their progressive sanctification. They don't know any of that. But they can say, I see God in them. I see God in them. Well, the Spirit does that. He empowers us so that people can say we're with Jesus. So they have nothing to say. Verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. What are you going to do? The, the guy's standing right there. Everybody knows about it. He's been healed. What are you going to say? Stop healing people. Stop mercifully changing people's lives. We don't like beggars having their life restored. You know, what, what are you going to say? We want people to continue suffering. They have nothing they can say. So they punt. They say, uh, let's have a recess. If you guys could please step outside. That's what they do. They ask them to leave. Verse 15, when they, com- well, they didn't ask them. I misread it. Verse 15, when they commanded them to leave, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So that's what they say. Look, what, what are we going to do? Everybody's excited about this. They don't, they don't question whether it happened. Guys healed. Everybody's excited about it. What are we going to do? Uh, let's just slap them on the hand and say, don't do it anymore. And so they threaten them. But the reason I say threaten them, it says that when they come back in, uh, verse 18, they charge them not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. Look down at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. So the threat sets up future punishment. So, you, you know, they're just walking in. Here's the healed guy. He's all giddy and smiling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they don't want to... What are you going to say? Everybody's excited about it. We're not going to ruin it all. But what we're going to do is charge you to stop teaching this doctrine. Stop preaching in his name. And that's going to set them up. That if they do, then they'll be able to punish them in the future. It's a threat. 
And here's how John and Peter respond to the threat. Verse 19, Peter and John answer them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Here's what he says. Look, uh, you're going to have to judge. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? That's, that's a slam. They represent God, but no longer. Because they've rejected God's saving purposes. So now they've, they've put themselves as, as an alternative, as an enemy to the purposes of God. They did represent God in the temple and in their leadership of Israel. Now they don't. And so they, they have to say, are we going to follow Jesus or are we going to follow him? And we have to talk about Christ. We're compelled. We, we have to talk about what we've seen and heard. There's no other salvation Everyone else needs to know. We want them to experience this life. We want them to know our Savior. We have to. It's not an option. And so what they're doing is they are politely, I think, uh, disobeying the authority here. And that's a very rare thing. The Bible commands that we are to submit to authority. Romans 13, we're to submit to the governing authorities. And this was church and governing authority, I suppose. But we are to submit to authority. Except when the authority... Forbids us from doing something God would call us to do or requires us to do something. Not just a preference, but what the Bible really says that we must do. So when it comes to saying you cannot preach the gospel, we have to we have to obey God instead of man. You cannot meet to pray, you cannot own a Bible, you cannot be a church. When those kind of things happen, Christians have to say, Well, we have to obey God and not not the government or the whatever the rule is at that time. So they tell them, we're going to have to speak. This is bold. This whole passage is about their boldness. They're speaking confidently. And where does this boldness come from? We'll wrap up with this. This boldness comes, first of all, they know Jesus. They know Jesus. They know the truth that there's no other way that people can be saved. They know the truth that Jesus gives new life. That Jesus loves people and restores them. That Jesus gives eternal life. That Christ is the way. That His death gives us new life. His resurrection gives us new life. That they, they recognize who Jesus is and what He has done. And so this inspires boldness. If there's no other way for someone to be saved, and we want them to be saved, we want them to know the forgiveness of sins, the clean conscience, and ultimately eternal life, then there's a boldness. We must declare what we know to be true about Christ. When we are confident in the truth of the gospel, what Christ has done, and the needs of people, the needs of people, the truth of the gospel, then there is a boldness... A love and a care, not an arrogance, but there's a boldness that causes us to speak up. And not only do they know about Christ, but they know Him personally. They have been with Him. Because they have personal knowledge of Jesus, it inspires their boldness. They've encountered God personally. We have to tell what we've seen and heard. We have to tell what we've experienced. We have to tell what we know about the goodness of God. We have to tell how He's changed our lives. We have to tell that even when life is difficult and there are problems, He is with us. We have to tell because we've been with Him and He's changed us. We've been with Him in the Word and He has changed us. We've been with His people. They're not up here risking their lives for an ideology. They're not up here risking their lives for a philosophy. They're not up here risking their lives for a religious preference. They're risking their lives for a person. 
Jesus Christ, the God-man, who has saved them. And they say, he's worth everything. He's worth cashing it all in. And he's worth saying, I'm giving my whole life to him. And if it costs me my life, it's worth it because I know him. And I know there is no other way to God. And I know him personally. So how are they bold? They know Jesus. Secondly, how are they bold? Verse 8. Peter, filled with the Spirit, said this stuff. They are filled with the Spirit. The presence of God has captured their hearts and is filling their mouths. We see that throughout Acts. Listen, as I've been reading Acts, and so have you, as we're reading through the book of Acts, I I notice there is this gap between my personal life and so much of Acts. Between Grace Church life and so much of Acts. Between uh, almost all evangelical churches in the U.S., I mean, maybe there's some that are experiencing all this, I don't know. But all the ones I know, there's a gap between U.S. evangelical churches and what we read in the book of Acts. And so I wrestle, what is that gap? What is the delta? What accounts for that delta? Well, there may be a number of things, but here's one of them. And it's a primary one. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The presence, they're filled, and it makes a difference. It could also be persecution. We're not challenged like they are. Persecution and opposition presses you into God in a way that many of us in our comfortable lives don't experience. So opposition is a good thing because it presses us into prayer. It presses us into God. And when we press into God, we experience power and these sort of things start happening. People converted. Radical things happening. The church gathered together in unity. A lot of things happen when there's opposition. Opposition is a good thing because it causes God's people to rely on Him and to trust Him and to come together. And they're filled with the Spirit. And we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need His presence. Why? Because we're called to be witnesses. We need His power. Why? Because we're called to serve others outside of ourselves. We need His power. Why? Because we need boldness and courage and faith to know what to say and to how to say it. We, we need His presence and power. Why? Because He gives spiritual gifts through His Spirit. And we want to be filled with the Spirit and empowered with His gifts. We need to be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because humanly we can do ordinary stuff. But the Holy Spirit does extraordinary stuff. Including healing people. Like this man. That's why we need the Spirit. So we want to ask for the Spirit. We want to ask to be filled with His presence. We want to pray to be filled with His presence. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.